This episode of The Taylor Stevens Show is brought to you by listeners, readers, and patrons. If you'd like to learn how to support this podcast, please visit www.patreon.com slash taylorstevens. the New York Times best-selling and award-winning author of kick-ass international thrillers, and this is The Taylor Stevens Show with my good friend Steve Campbell, where we are kicking writing in the butt one word at a time. And today we have another farm story, and I'm promised that this farm story is very funny, so <laughs> <laughs> okay, no, I'm setting I you told, up big time. <laughs> I know. What I told Steve was, I've told this story to one person. And when I told it, I laughed so hard, you couldn't even understand. I was squealing. You couldn't understand what I was saying. But enough time has passed now that I think I can tell it with a straight face. So here's what happened. Remember before I told you about that little chicken who would go up in the tree and leave her babies down on the ground? And I I'd go and I knock her down on that tree and tell her, go take care of your babies, you know, do what you mm-hmm. need to do. Okay. So anyway, um, the, the branch that she settles in is just a little too high for me to reach her. So what I'll do is I'll pull like one of the lower branches, pull it down. So it kind of bends the branch a little bit. And then I reach her with my other arm and I pull her down and I let the branch go and I go put her where she needs to go. But this one night I was tired and on the branch that she was sitting on, there was her and two other little bantam chickens. And I go and I, I pull the branch down and I'm like, I don't want to stretch. And re- what if I just let the branch go? And maybe it would knock her off and, and I could just catch her. <laughs> but I sorely <laughs> underestimated the tension of the branch. And I sorely overestimated the weight of the chickens. <laughs> They're like... <laughs> Maybe not even, maybe barely a pound each. They're really tiny, bitty things. <laughs> so I, I pulled the branch down and I, I let it go. <laughs> and it was like a cartoon where these three chickens went, pew! <laughs> the soundtrack. Soundtrack and everything. <laughs> like, squee, squee. I mean, I mean, it was. Uh, it happened so fast. It was so unexpected, and I just stood there, and then I just doubled over laughing. Like, what else could you do? Just these like chickens flying like cannonballs every which way. Oh my. <laughs> the rest of the night I mean I did manage to get her and I got her on her babies and the rest of the night I just I would think about what I just seen and I couldn't stop laughing it was so extreme like and unexpected yet it could have been expected if you'd done the engineering work in your mind first yes (laughs) if I realized how much tension was in that branch and how light those chickens were. It was. Oh god! <laughs> they had to have gone three or four feet into the air, every which way. Squawk! <laughs> Feathers flapping. 
it was, yeah, that's my story. All right, that's a good one. I have a similar story, although not as funny. We had um, we had gone to Texas for the birth of a, a grandson, and while the mother, dad, and the baby, or baby-to-be, were all in the hospital, we obviously couldn't go because of the COVID stuff, so we're, we're at home taking care of the cats and stuff. They live on a little farm. And one morning, well, one night, I, I happened to say to Julie, it's like, I wonder what the cats do at night, you know, because there are coyotes and things around here. I wonder how they protect themselves. And Julie's like, oh, they're cats. They're fine. They can protect themselves. So the next morning, it's a beautiful morning. I'm out walking around. It's nice and cool, much cooler than it, it, it is, is in Florida right now. And Julie comes out and starts heading to the shed where the cats are fed. And I hear this noise up at the top of a dead tree. And I look up, and there's this, this cat at the very top of a dead tree. And it's pretty high up. It's probably 30 feet up. And I'm like, well, that's interesting. I could imagine how he got up there, but I'm not sure how he's going to get down. And so he's looking at me, and then he cries, like, somebody come and get me. I'm not coming to get you. So he works his way down branch by branch until he gets about halfway down, which is about another 15 feet, and there are no more branches. I'm like, how's oh, he no, going to do, do you... this? And I'm looking, and I'm calling Julie over. It's like, you got to come and see this. And she's getting her phone out. I, I don't, we did not get the video of this. But, oh, she, oh, we did. But um, all of a sudden, the cat just runs down the, runs down the, um, the base of the tree, the trunk of the tree, and there's this loud, as it hits the ground, it's like head first, and then it just shook it off and went in to eat. So it must be that's its move. That's where it hides at night, and it just kind of sprints down the trunk, lands head first, and goes in and eats. And that's why it's dumb enough to do it all again the next day. <laughs> exactly. And that's my first ever story from the farm. I'm well, that's about, awesome. How about that? I think that's great. I and love so we it. both had farm stories that involved heights and animals and falling. Yes. 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 And flying. All right. So fortunately for us, we tied up all the loose ends for our stories. You know, we know that the, the chickens survived, the cat survived and went into, went into breakfast. But sometimes authors don't tie up all the loose ends and they don't tie up all the storylines. And that can be frustrating for readers. That was really smooth. Good job. (laughs) I'm sure as listeners, um, you can tell that our subject today is tying up loose ends. But that's really a loosely tied subject title. Um, This is I want to talk about this today more as uh, from the angle of reader disappointment and satisfying endings. Um, The material I was working through that started me on this subject I haven't even begun to touch it yet in terms of finding out if there's examples we can use. So this really is an overview, and it's possible that in the future I'll be able to come back to it. But for now, this is part one of a who knows if we're going to come back to this again. So, um, you know, we always try and focus, decide, you know, is this a story issue or is this a writing issue? And this one uh, falls under story because it's big picture. And... When I think about endings, right, so I'm sure that, well, you likely will have heard this 
saying where they say every story has three parts, a beginning, a muddle, and an end. <laughs> and when it comes to those three parts, starting the story is easy. And you can start stories till the cows come home. Getting through the muddle is really, really hard. But the end is what can make or break a book. So when I talk about getting to the end, making or breaking a book, there's two different ways of looking at it. First is just getting to the finish line, right? Because if you don't get to the finish line, then there is no story. Finishing, right? That is a triumph in and of its own, right? You finished the book. But the ending that I want to talk about is the actual ending ending. Because if the ending fails to deliver on all of the promises that the story has made along the way, then it, it can ruin the book. Like the, a dis the disappointment that you feel when an ending doesn't deliver is enough to make everything that you read that was awesome getting there just go, eh. And, and I was reminded of that. I, I watched a, a series, I'm not going to say what it was, uh, recently, that I loved it. I loved every single episode right up until the end. And I felt like the end just kind of flubbed it. It, it rushed things. It didn't feel complete. And it didn't fit the same long form, in-depth sort of storytelling that the rest of it, the story did. And so I guess that was even on my mind when I started looking at the material for, for today. So how a story ends, even though it's such a small, small part of the book, has an enormous impact on the entire feel of the book. And let me let me jump in here for a minute. And I, I I've I heard a sports reporter one time talking or a sports commentator talking about this one time and the idea and that this was during the the time when all of the sports were over and it's like should should we restart and have the World Series for example or should we restart and have the NBA uh, playoffs and his point was that a great ending can make up for a bad story and so he he was talking specifically about basketball and how because of the way the season laid out you really needed to let it let it play itself out so that there was an ending but then he used a movie as as an example and this particular movie I've seen I don't know whether you've seen it or not Taylor but a lot of our listeners will have and it's called The Usual Suspects and it has such a spectacular ending that even if even if the movie were bad you would think, wow, this was a great story. This was a great movie. And it, it's, um, I, I, I can't tell you, I, I can't explain what it is. because no, I've, I, I, I've seen it. Okay, I've you have seen it. Seen it. it. Yeah. All right. Um, and I, I totally hear what you're saying on that. I think with books, it's only a slight bit different if we were going to use that as an as example, because there's so much time invested in reading a book to get to the end that you can't have a bad book that's salvaged by the end that makes it a great book because so many readers will have never gotten to the end to begin with, but you can have maybe a mediocre book. Well, I mean, I think the story. point for, for an author though would be is, is it, does the reader want to read the next book then? 
or another book. By yeah, you. but you've got to you've got to get them to the end first before they yes. can even make that decision. Yes. So, um, but yeah, it's a great it's a great analogy um, that the ending is so the ending can totally change how you feel about a story both directions. It can make you feel disappointed in a story or it can save a story that you felt disappointed in. So ultimately, the underlying issue beneath satisfying or unsatisfying endings is reader disappointment or reader expectations, right? So in a perfect world, that's where I'd go, great, let's focus on endings. Let's lay out all the steps for trying to, uh, for tying things up and avoiding reader disappointment. But with this being an imperfect world, and as with so many things story-related, the definition of disappointment is never going to be the same from book to book, and it's probably not even be the same from reader to reader. And that's because disappointment is a byproduct of unmet expectations. And expectations come in all shapes and sizes. Some of them are conscious. Some of them are unconscious. And when we look at it that way, um, on a macro level, so like on a conscious level, some of the very biggest expectations that are going to drive reader satisfaction or reader disappointment are going to be like genre comparisons. For example, like if if you liked Author X, you'll also like Author Y, um, even the author's previous work, right? So like if a story fails to deliver according to genre expectations, well, yeah, readers are definitely going to be disappointed. You know, you go into this thinking you're going to read a romance and you end up reading a thriller. That's not happening, right? Immediate disappointment. But if a story delivers all the genre expectations, but readers are going into it thinking, it's going to be similar to what author X wrote, and then they fail to find that similarity, well, they're still going to be disappointed because it's a different kind of expectation that hasn't been delivered. And I experienced a lot of that with The Informationist when The Informationist was released because it came out right on the heels of Dragon Tattoo Mania. And so many readers and so many reviewers were comparing Monroe to Lisbeth Salander. And I mean, it was so extreme that you could you could be forgiven for thinking that the informationist was written specifically to step into the shoes left by the dragon books. But it wasn't like I didn't even know what the Millennium Trilogy was. I didn't even know those books existed until after the informationist was finished. And so when people who picked up the informationist did it specifically because of this promise that, you know, if you liked Elizabeth Salander, you're going to love Monroe. And then they found that it failed to deliver on that. The disappointment was so extreme that it turned into like anger and loathing. And the issue wasn't with the story. It was that it failed to deliver on what were, in my opinion, very unrealistic expectations. So expectation is really what's driving satisfaction. So if the story delivers genre expectations and it delivers on comparison expectations, but then it veers away from the expectations laid down by the author's previous work, well, you're right back in disappointment land again. 
And you see this happen often when an author ends a series with a well-loved character and turns to something new. So you saw it happen with uh, Stephanie Plum books are huge hits, but when the author started a different series, it just never took off. Uh, Same thing happened with um, the Suki Stackhouse True Blood books. Um, Series was a huge hit, but when the author... Uh, wrote something else, it just never took off. So it's just, it's not meeting that same, same author, same style of book, but just not meeting the the same need. And then sometimes an author will like completely switch genres and then, oh my God, you know, that's just really extreme, right? So that's three layers of disappointment. Then like what happens if you get all of that right but then you got to add in individual reader experience and taste, which is hugely varied. I mean, you can just look at any reviews on look at the reviews on any book. Go and you'll see like five stars. The author's best work yet. One star. This book sucked and didn't live up to their previous work. Or like, you know, this five stars. This book was so amazing. I love the complexity and the depth of the characters. One star. This plot made no sense. It was all confusing. The characters were wooden and flat. Same book, same author. Readers who are already fans of the series, completely different experience, right? So when you factor all of that together, it is impossible to lay down a single set of how to avoid reader disappointment rules that are going to apply straight across the board to every genre, every story in the genre, and much less to every author, ever, every reader. I mean, even if you get all that right, you can't, you know, there's, as it's been said, there's no accounting for taste, right? So on the macro level, on that, that big picture level, you know, the only advice you can offer is wide and it is broad. Whatever your story is, make sure it meets genre expectations. If you have any control over your book or author comparisons, try to stay as close as possible to what you know you'll be delivering. And if you're going to write something different than what you're known for, maybe consider using a pseudonym or spell your name differently or use initials or something for the different genres and styles. And if you choose, let your readers know. They all know it's, they know it's all you, but it avoids the confusion and it kind of keeps it all separate. Those are things you can do. That's it. That's all you can do. The rest is completely beyond your control. But on a micro level, on a subconscious level, it's different because in general, every story promises an ending that delivers three specific things. And readers expect to find those things. And when they don't find them, their expectations will not be met. And that's going to translate into disappointment. And sometimes that disappointment will be so great that it's going to carry into a feeling over the entire book. But when your ending does deliver on those promises and it meets those expectations, you're at least guaranteeing that all other factors aside, whatever disappointment the reader might be feeling about your story isn't because they're feeling cheated, like the ending was unsatisfying. And so I want to discuss what those three specific promises are that lead to specific often very unconscious, the reader's not even aware that they're looking for them, promises. You promise this, they're expecting you to deliver. 
So the first one of these is emotional closure and conflict resolution. And what this looks like in practicality is going to be very specific to your story. And I think the best way that I can explain what emotional closure and conflict resolution would look like in a grand sense so that you could apply it to most situations is to use an example from one of my own books. And this is from The Mask. So The Mask takes place in Japan. And for those of you who've already read it, bear with me. Um, I'm going to, for those of you who haven't, I'm going to try really hard to not put any spoilers in here. So Miles Bradford is a continuing character, and he's working a private security contract for a biotech company in Osaka. Monroe, Vanessa Michael Monroe, is the series' main character, and she's fresh off a fight with Somali pirates, and she's come to Japan to reconnect with Miles Bradford. And they're both hoping that it's possible to rebuild their relationship after so all the trauma that's taken place and kept them separated in between a few books. So shortly into Monroe's stay, a woman at the biotech company is murdered and Bradford's arrested. And when it happens, it's shocking, it's unexpected. And in the aftermath of learning about the arrest, Monroe also learns that Bradford's been lying to her. So she's faced with the challenge of proving the innocence and securing the release of the man she loves, all the while knowing he might not be innocent, innocent. So as she begins to dig for answers, she realizes that there's more than one set of circumstances and more than one villain. There's a lot going on, and that is the primary plot line. And by the time we get to the end of the story, all of the questions related to exactly who did what to who and why and how all these factors that didn't seem to fit fall into place and it all gets resolved. And there's this big sense of, oh, okay, and bad guys who deserve to have bad things happen to them have it happen to them. Um, there's a big sense of emotional closure and conflict level, uh, conflict resolution on one level. In the course of that same investigation and trying to figure out what happened, Monroe also encounters a third villain. And this third villain is only tangentially, if you even pronounce that's even how you pronounce that word, um, related to the primary plot line. But it has a major impact on Monroe and the choices she's forced to make throughout the story because of the way his business and the people he's hurt intersect her investigation into the, the main thing. And he's the type of villain that you want to see something bad happen to him just because you hate him so much. So the story, as I originally wrote it, it met all the genre requirements. It certainly met the expectations created by my previous work. And it ended with all the questions answered, all the threads tied. So you could say that from a technical standpoint, it ticked all the boxes. But in spite of all the other action, all the other physical interaction, all the other closure, all the fight sequences, 
there was never any physical confrontation between Monroe and this third villain. She got what she wanted. She took something from him that he valued. There was an ending. There was closure. The thread wasn't dropped. But there was less emotional closure than what there could have been because even though this villain didn't win, there also wasn't a sense that he got what he deserved. So while the story met all these other requirements, it was still missing the satisfying sigh of, yes, this is really how it should have been. And so I had been on the fence about it. Like, I sort of kind of felt like it needed more, but it had already delivered everything else. And I was tired of writing this book. I got to the end. I fixed, I I answered all the questions. (laughs) And I discussed it with my editor. And she was like, I really think people are going to be expecting something between those two, that what happened here isn't quite enough. And I knew she was right. So I went back to the drawing board and I wrote more material. And I really didn't want to do it because I was just so ready to be done at that point. And now I had to conjure new scenes and I had to choreograph a brutal fight sequence. And then I had to blend the whole thing back into the rest of the story so it all fit the way it looked like it was meant to be that way forever. And it was a lot of brain work and I would have really rather preferred to avoid it. But in retrospect, I am horrified at the idea that I ever thought I could let it slide. Like that is what for that story, true emotional, emotional satisfaction, conflict resolution looked like. It's not going to be the same for for every story. It's not going to be the same for every genre. So if you want the full immersive experience on the subject of emotional closure and satisfying endings in a way that you actually see it play out in real life to where you could take that understanding and apply it to other situations, I'd really recommend that you go and you read The Mask and you stop on page 324. That's the original ending. And mull it over. Think about it. Consider the entire story as if that's the end. And then when you're ready, go read the next 14 pages. And that's the difference between, yeah, this is good and this is really satisfying. Again, it's not going to be the same for every reader because, you know, different readers have different tastes. But in on the whole, in general, and I say this with utmost love and respect, my readers are a bloodthirsty lot. They are unhappy when Monroe is not kicking butt. And I knew that if I didn't meet that expectation, if I didn't go that extra step, I would be depriving them of something that would feel very satisfying to them, would give them that sense of true, yeah, that's right. So I did. That doesn't mean that every book's going to require the same thing. It's the underlying principle behind it that you can apply across the board. So that is an example of the ways in which there are different levels of emotional closure. And the point you're going for here is you want to do everything you can to deliver as much of that emotional closure closure as the story asks you to. And it is going to vary from story to story, 
author to author, genre to genre, but it is a promise that the story is guaranteeing, just by starting that story and getting to the end, that reader is going into it with the expectation that they will be given this thing that has been promised to them, emotional closure. And it's up to you to deliver that. And that's an example of what that means. So the second thing that every story, every ending promises to deliver and readers are going to it, into it expecting, and when you fail to meet this expectation, you are going to leave them disappointed, is answers to questions that are left open. So this too is situational and it's gonna mean something completely different to a standalone story than it would in a series or maybe even in a serial story. So a serial would be like a trilogy in which every volume is just a larger part of the story and no single volume is self-contained. So like The Lord of the Rings, for example, would be a serial in which all of the books together make up the story. A series would be like the books that I write, where you have continuing characters and maybe even continuing themes or storylines or stuff that isn't closed off, but each book is a standalone and self-contained in the sense that that specific story has a beginning and end and it closes up. So in a standalone book about the only wiggle room for unanswered questions that you have is where the point of view characters simply have no way to get those questions fully answered. So in that type of situation, the big questions that are driving the primary plot line still need to be answered, but there might be stuff that the main character just does, or any of the point of view characters just don't know, or they don't understand, and there's no real way to convey it because how would they know unless you did an um, omniscient point of view or something? So in case like that, as long as the big stuff is answered, you can get away with leaving the smaller unknowns as unknowns, provided they are addressed and they're not just left hanging. So for example, in a standalone book, you could have a character end up in a situation where they're saying, you know, I didn't fully understand why X did Y. The best I could make of it was ABC. And I suppose in the end, that secret will always stay buried with him. But what I do know is that searching for it led me to UVW. And because of UVW, these other things happened, whatever. So even though there are questions left unanswered, they're still addressed as unanswered questions. And the by implication, having addressed them as unanswered, they're not just left open or hanging. And that's what you that's the violation right there is leaving questions open or hanging where they're just they just never never show up anywhere. They're just out there in the in the other. So that's for standalone books. In series books, there's an extra level of wiggle room for unanswered questions that will they care like when unanswered questions carry over from book to book. So it might be some mystery in the character's past that's working as a driving motivation or maybe something the character is doing now 
it's his worldview is framed by something that he's seeking answers for, but he doesn't actually get those answers from book to book. I think that there's um, a really popular series where the the, um, the main character's daughter was uh, murdered, and she's that that's kind of like a driving quest for her. And it's a, it's a motivator in a lot of what she does is she's seeking answers for what happened to her daughter. But it, I think maybe like 15 books into it or something, you might finally start to get answers. But there's lots of storylines where she's promised answers or whatever, and it just continues. It's, it's not resolved. But the story, the things she's working on, the cases she's working or whatever throughout each individual book, those have resolution. So the unanswered questions are not, even though they might be intertwined with the plot and intertwined with the character's motivation, they are not unanswered questions in the actual story plot lines that are self-contained within those two covers within the series. So another example of that would be um, with the Jack and Jill stories. So in those ones, there's this larger thread of Dmitri. He's the twins, supposedly the twins' father. Um, they, they never met him. And there's this open question of, will they finally get to figure out, will they finally figure out who he is? Will they finally get to meet him? And not only is it not answered in the books, it's a major plot point that's driving both of the books so far that are in the series. But even though that question remains open, it works and it doesn't feel like an unanswered question because everything else within each specific volume is completely closed up by the end. There are hints that leave things open to something more in the future, but there's nothing left unresolved in the sense of, wait, what, ha what about that guy? What was that person's motivation? The questions are all answered and it all makes sense in the end. So that's with series books. Now with serials, which is where, um, you know, no book is self-contained in and of itself, you can leave questions open and you can leave threads untied from book to book because each book is more like a really long chapter and a very, very long story. But that then turns it into a situation where the final book is the equivalent of the story's end. And it still has to deliver all the promises that are made by the story, not just by everything that happens in one book, but all the promises that are made by the entire series. And if you get to the end of a serial, of your end of a series like that, and you don't answer all the questions, you're gonna make a lot of people really, really, really unhappy. So that's even more threads that you've gotta keep track of. The third thing, the third promise that every book is telling the reader that is going to deliver. And if you don't deliver it, you're failing to meet their expectations and they're going to feel disappointment is unity uh, or loop closure. And this is a little bit more difficult to explain um, because it has to do with a sense of completeness and the direct relationship between the elements in a self-contained system. So when we read a story we know instinctively, logically, that the story doesn't exist in a vacuum. We know there are things that happen in the characters' lives before the story started. We know there are things that are going to continue to happen after the story ends. But even though we know that, we still view the story as self-contained. 
It has a beginning. It has an end. And we expect that those two things, the beginning and the end, will directly relate to each other. So no matter how big the story is, no matter how vast the array of characters, no matter how many eons the story spans, it still remains a closed system with a beginning and an end in which all the pieces directly relate to the others. That open and closed loop and the continuity within it, that's the difference between a story and a bunch of random stuff that happens to a bunch of random people. So our pattern-making, story-seeking brain, it needs the continuity. And we need that loop closed for us. And so we expect it. And by the time we reach the end, we expect that the end is going to unify the whole, that it's going to connect back to the beginning in some way. And it might be a really jagged, dog-legged route from beginning to end, but it should still be traceable. The connection, the line that, that takes us from beginning to the end should still be there. And if it's not, if it's too jagged or if the continuity gets broken at any point, then it's imperative that the end of the story finds a way to patch that path up so that the reader can find the continuity. Otherwise, the system isn't self-contained and the loops stay open and it can't be the end and it can't bring any satisfaction. It's just this sudden confusing stop. So that unity, beginning and end, that's a promise that somehow how the story concludes is going to be directly related to how it started. And those are the three things that you have to deliver. And that is as far as I've gotten on this subject. I, I think I'm going to be able to pull up some examples of what it would look like when either the questions are left open or the continuity is broken. But I don't have them today because we've already gotten long enough. And I can't promise when I'm going to have them. But this is a primer. This kind of gets you started on what it is that you're looking for in your endings. And it, and it gives you a map, as it will, of things you need to be looking for when you, whenever you open a thread in your, in your story or, you know, character lives, um, character motivations, all of this. It, it has to come to a resolution where it all comes together and it makes sense. And some people, some authors are able to keep track of that mentally just because, and I think like, because I work off of a uh, feeling rather than words, I, I don't generally have to map it out visually to keep track of it because I feel it. But if you're more of a um, linear writer, if you work with, if you hear the words, then you probably want to keep a running uh, character map, plot map. Every time you insert a new thing, make sure that you note it so that as you go through your story, you can make sure that you're closing off uh, unanswered questions as you go, that you make sure that by the time you get to the end, there aren't any of these open motivation, open um, questionable actions, whatever, that are left unexplained. That by the time you get to the end, 
what most of it's already been handled, but then the end is what makes sure that everything is resolved and closed off. Um, For some people, it, it might be beneficial to keep a running list of elements as you add them so that you can be sure to close them off as you go. And that's all I got. And with that, we have reached the end of this podcast. So, Taylor, thank you very much for that. Um, And we will be back in your ear soon, like next Tuesday. Uh, Thanks for listening. (laughs) Thanks for being here, guys. See you next week.